Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sermon Podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others so that you can go and live a life driven by faith. You and I live in a culture that is increasingly opposed to those who trust in God. And it can be a challenge to understand how we are to live in such a world. Right now, we are in a journey through the book of Daniel, learning how God calls us, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, to live when surrounded by people who do not believe. This week, we're going to hear the true story of two kings. Both these kings suffered from the same vice that threatened their kingdoms. It's actually a vice that you and I deal with too, and it threatens our lives as well. And by listening to the stories of these two kings, we will learn how to deal with this vice in our own lives as well. So I hope you listen closely, and I hope you enjoy this, because I believe God has something he would like to say to you. This is the true tale of two kings today, in Daniel chapter 4 and in Daniel chapter 5. And these kings are similar in many ways. They're similar in many ways. They rule the same kingdom. They're both kings of Babylon. They are from the same family line, and they're both, in their time, the most powerful rulers on earth. They are the ones who are in charge, and they're similar in many ways, but they are different in one very important way. They are different in that the first king learns his lesson, and the second one does not. And within the stories of two kings, there is, for you and for me, both a hope and a warning. The hope has to do with how we understand the world around us. We've been talking over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, through this book of Daniel. And the reason we've been spending time here is because Daniel is living out his faith as a follower of of his God, as a follower of Yahweh, as a follower of the God of the Israelites, in a culture that did not believe what he believed. In fact, they believed the exact opposite. They worshipped completely different gods. And they were in the business of stopping people from worshiping the God of the Israelites. And so Daniel maintains his faith in the midst of this culture. And we're talking about this because you know that this is true. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're someone who believes that the Bible is the word of God, when you leave this space where you might be the majority here and you go out into that world, uh, we become the minority out there. That we too are living in a culture where by and large people do not believe what those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus believe about the Bible and what it is as God's word and about how we are to spend our life. And so the stories in Daniel are helpful to that end. How do you maintain faith in such a world? And we'll get a hope through these stories, a hope for us living in that sort of culture. But there will also be a warning to us as well. You see, both of these kings, they suffered from the same vice, And it is something that plagues you and me, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background, no matter what culture you come from, no matter what your status in this world, no matter what your background or where you've been from, this same vice that plagued these two kings, it plagues you and me as well. In fact, uh, the philosopher C.S. Lewis, he said that this vice is at the root of all other vices. He said that this thing is actually the complete anti-God state of mind. And the great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, he said, this thing that we're talking about, the thing that both these kings suffered from and that you and I suffer from too, that it is 
the open door for the devil to get a hold of our hearts. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, more plans of God have become unhinged by this than anything else. And so there'll be a warning for you and for me as well. A hope in how we view this world and a warning in how we live our lives. Our first king, Daniel chapter 4, starts out and he's doing something very kingly. At least what I think is kingly. When I picture kings in the ancient world, this is something that they do. He is in his palace in the top floor looking out a window that overlooks the entire kingdom. And he is... uh, talking about how impressive the kingdom is and talking about how impressive he is as a king. Doesn't that seem like something that ancient kings did often? That they would go on the the rooftop of the palace, look out a window that overlooked the city or the empire that they were over, and they would be so impressed by themselves and so impressed by what they saw before them. In fact, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. He says, as he's looking at the city, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now, to be honest, Nebuchadnezzar, he had reason to think that he was great and that his city was great. There was really no ancient city, I think, that was more beautiful than Babylon. In fact, some of you know the the hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar made for one of his wives, uh, that those are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you have, he's looking out over this city and he sees the hanging gardens. Maybe he's looking out over the Ishtar Gate, which you can go and see if next time that you're in Berlin, Germany, you can go to the Pergamum Museum and see this gate. Uh, Lori and I had the privilege of seeing this a number of years ago. Do you not even remember? Oh, you do. Okay. Uh, Lori and I had the privilege of going and seeing this a number of years ago. And when you walk into the museum, there is the Ishtar Gate exactly like it was in Daniel's day and King Nebuchadnezzar's day uh, with the ceramic bricks and with the uh, images of lions and other beasts that would have been to the Babylonian gods. It's 40 feet high, the opening, and it's an impressive gate. And so these are all over the city these sorts of structures. And so Nebuchadnezzar has reason to be impressed with himself. It's an incredibly beautiful city, but it's not just beautiful, it's also powerful. Picture this with me if you can. The old city of Babylon, which is the largest city in antiquity. The old city of Babylon was surrounded by two exterior walls. The first wall was 21 feet thick, The second wall was 12 feet thick, and at every 65-foot interval, there was a tower, and much of this has been unearthed by archaeologists over uh, over the last 120 years, and so these towers exist every 65 feet, and they were armed towers uh, to stop people from coming into the city, and of course to stop some people from leaving the city, I'm sure. And around those two exterior walls, there is a moat that at its widest point is 200 feet across around the entire exterior of the city. Well, Nebuchadnezzar and his predecessor, that wasn't enough. And so they built a wall that was 80 feet wide around the entire northern end of their kingdom. And so the old city was surrounded by these double walls. And then this northern part of the kingdom where Nebuchadnezzar's palace was, was surrounded by a wall that was 80 feet wide. And again, towers at every interval to protect the city. And on the other side of this wall, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers were used to create a moat that was 300 feet across. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to look out the window and say to himself, look at what I have done, how great I am, and how great this city is. You know what happens to the king when he says that, though? Is almost immediately, almost immediately, a voice comes to him from heaven and says this. Almost immediately after he says that, a voice comes from heaven and says to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 31. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, or seven years, shall pass over you. Nebuchadnezzar makes this comment that how great he is and how great the city is. And almost immediately, he is driven from the city. And sure enough, this happens. He is driven from the city and he is sent out into the wilderness where he is exiled and lives like an animal in the, in the, in the wilderness. You don't necessarily have to take the Bible's word for this uh, if you're skeptical about that. There are Greek historians one named Xenophon, and, and there's some more out there that talk about how there was a king named Nabonidus who was in charge of Babylon, and he took the name Nebuchadnezzar. And that in the middle of his reign, he disappeared into the wilderness to a city called Tamah and was there for about seven to ten years. The biblical account, I think, is true. And the reason this happened should not have been a surprise to King Nebuchadnezzar. Should not have been a surprise to him. Because about a year earlier, he had had a dream. And this was one of those dreams that just sat wrong with him when he woke up. It was one of those dreams, maybe you've had one of these, where you wake up and you cannot get the dream out of your mind. And he called all of his, uh, his magicians and his sorcerers and enchanters into his throne room. And he said, this is my dream. What does it mean? And all of them said, we have no idea, King, what this means. And so then he called Daniel. And if you've been following the story with us, do you think the kings will ever get to the point that they just call Daniel first? But finally he calls Daniel. And Daniel comes in, and the king tells him the dream. He says, Daniel, here's what happened. I saw the earth, and out of the center of the earth, a tree began to grow. And the tree became so big that it took over the entire world. And the shade of its branches provided shade for the animals of this world. And the animals found rest and homes in its branches. And then a voice came from heaven that said, chop down the tree. And his, meaning the, who the tree represents, his dwelling will be with the beasts of the field for seven periods of time or for seven years. And he says, Daniel, what does it mean? Well, Daniel hears the dream and he begins to shake violently. Because he knows exactly what it means, and he knows the king is not going to want to hear it. You know that feeling when you have to schedule a meeting with someone and tell them something that, that they don't want to hear? You've done that before. You know you're going to have to talk to your spouse or your kids, or you know you're going to have to schedule a meeting with your boss, and you've got to walk in there and tell them something they are not happy to hear. And that feeling, that anticipation that you have, the days and sometimes weeks or hours leading up to that meeting. I mean, you can imagine what Daniel is feeling. He knows what this means to the king. And he doesn't want to say it, but the king sees it all written all over Daniel's face. And he says, just give it to me straight, Daniel. Tell me what it means. Daniel says, here's the deal. 
You have risen to the greatest ruler on earth. You are the tree. And your power exceeds everyone else's. But one day God is going to chop you down. And you are going to find your home for seven years, seven periods of time, with the beasts of the wilderness. And Nebuchadnezzar at that time, he says, you know, let it not be true. Let it not be true. But Daniel says it is going to happen until an important moment. It's going to happen until you know, he says in verse 25, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And when Nebuchadnezzar forgot, and he looked at his world and he said, look how great it is and look how powerful I am. God sent him away until he knew the lesson. But look what happens at the end of the story. In verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And do you know what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar when he repents and turns his eyes towards heaven and says, Guess what? You are God and I am not. And hanging gardens, seven, one of the seven wonders of the ancient worlds, or not, or my walls, or my moats, or anything else that I've created, pales in comparison to you, God restores him fully to what he had before. But there's a second king. And this king is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. The night is October 12th, 539 BC. And you say to yourself, well, that's oddly specific, but we know from ancient records. Not just the biblical account, but other ancient historical records. That the night is October 12th, 539 B.C. Belshazzar. He's one of those young, arrogant rulers that you might see depicted in a movie or something like that. Who just wants to take all of his wealth and use it to party and have a good time. If Belshazzar lived today, he would have millions of Instagram followers. He just wanted to have a good time and have a giant party and invite everyone else to be a part of it. And that's how Belshazzar lived. In fact, the accounts of him are that he would often throw massive parties. And you don't think dinner party with everyone sitting around drinking tea and having nice discussion. You think frat party with thousands of people uh, having a great time or so they thought. And on this particular night, on August... On October 12th, 539 BC, Belshazzar is having this kind of party, and a thousand of his leaders and nobles are there. And all of their wives and concubines are there as well. So picture thousands of people drinking and partying and just having the time of their lives. But what they don't realize is that outside those impenetrable city walls, the Persian army is beginning to gather and mobilize. And they know Belshazzar, and they know that he loves to party. And so they're just waiting for the king to be dumb enough to get himself and all of his leaders so drunk that they have no idea what's going on. And they mobilize their troops outside of the city. And the Euphrates River, the Euphrates River ran under the city walls and provided uh, needed water to the entire city of Babylon. And while Belshazzar and his friends were having a great time, the Persian army went upriver and dammed up the water and redirected the Euphrates River. 
And no one noticed in the midst of their revelry that the level of the water was dropping. And sure enough, once it had dropped enough, the Persian army crawled under those walls, those walls that they thought no one could get through, crawled under the walls through the muddy riverbank and arrived in the middle of the city. The Babylonian army was not mobilized. It was not ready to attack. And so they very, quite simply for the ancient world, just took control of the city. And that night, that night, King Cyrus, or as he's known in the Bible, King Darius, took control as the leader of the Persian world. Now you say to yourself, how could Belshazzar be so stupid? How could he be so stupid? With all of these watchtowers on the walls and all of these people that could have possibly been there to warn him and to stop the Persian invasion, how is it that Belshazzar could not see the writing on the wall? Well, it turns out he did see the writing on the wall. He just didn't pay attention. See, what you read in Daniel chapter 5 is that, is that in the middle of the party, something happened. Something happened that, that caused the king great worry. In fact, this is the way it says it in Daniel chapter 5 verse 6. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together, right? I picture something like, like Shaggy and Scooby-Doo when he sees a ghost, that sort of reaction. His color changes and his knees knock together and he's shivering. Something happens that causes the king great distress, great distress. And what happens, and put yourself in the scene, not literally, figuratively, put yourself in the scene. Everyone's partying and having a good time. And while all this is happening, a hand appears on the wall. You can imagine the mindset of the people, what this must have done to them. A hand appears on the wall and begins to write on the wall. And it's not just the fact that this hand is writing, but Belshazzar can't understand the words. He sees characters, but he has no idea what they mean. It's kind of like when your teenager texts you. And you see characters, you see all sorts of characters and abbreviations, but you have no idea what they mean. That's exactly what, how Belshazzar felt when he saw those things. And he knew he needed someone to tell him what that meant. He knew it was an important message. And so he gets his magicians and his enchanters and his sorcerers. And shocker, in chapter 5 of Daniel, they have no idea what it means. And so the queen says, why don't you go get Daniel? Still haven't learned. Why don't you go get Daniel? And Daniel comes in and he tells him exactly what it means. He says, king, here are the words that are written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And here's what those words mean, Daniel says. Mene means numbered. And he says, God says, king, your days are numbered. Tekel means weighed or measured. And he says, King, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And parson means divided. And he says, King, your kingdom is divided. And you're not going to stand. Now, Belshazzar's father had this experience of being, being put into the desert for or the wilderness for these seven years and being humbled to the point that he repented and turned towards God. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, you have a greater responsibility. You have ignored God even after you saw your father learn this lesson the hard way. And he says it this way. He says, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you saw everything that your father went through. 
And here's what Belshazzar did that really angered God. When Babylon captured the Israelites, they took all the precious items out of the temple and put them in their temple. All the things that used to be for the worship of God, they put in their temple for the worship of idols. And at this party, Belshazzar got all those things out. The goblets, the vessels, all those holy items. He brought them out and they filled them with wine and they drank out of them and had a great time. And not only did they misuse them in that way, they also took those vessels that were meant for the worship of God and they used them for the worship of idols. And God says, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Or Daniel says this to Belshazzar, and the vessels of his house you have been, have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, the God who holds your life in his hands, he's saying, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And because you've misused his items and because you have not honored God, here's the deal, king. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the scales and you've been found wanting. And your kingdom is divided and it's going to fall. What does Belshazzar do in this moment where his kingdom is on the line? Does he repent? Does he turn to God? Does he recognize his own arrogance and his pride like his father did? No. All he does is put a purple robe on Daniel, put a giant gold chain around his neck, and promote him to the third highest position in his kingdom. Because all he does is elevate Daniel but doesn't repent before God, that night, the Persians come in into the city that could not be defeated and take it over, and he loses his kingdom and loses his life. In this story, there is a message for you and for me, and the message is the same message that God was teaching these kings and his people at the time. And the message offers for us both a hope and a warning. And the message is this. Kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. It doesn't matter how powerful someone is or how much control they have. Their kingdom will come and go. Their reign will eventually be over. But God's kingdom does not end. And that ought to offer us a sense of hope. If you're someone that follows Jesus, if you're someone that follows God with your life in the middle of a culture that does not, it ought to make us hopeful that we are a part of a kingdom that does not end, that we are a part of a kingdom that exists outside of this world, that the important people in this world, and think of who they are, the people that that are held in high esteem, the people that make decisions and the entire world is affected, that group that gathers at the UN to make decisions for everybody, that all of them with all their power and all their authority over the people of this earth, that their kingdoms are temporary, that they will not last. They are here today and they are gone tomorrow. But God's kingdom lasts forever. 
And so we ought not to worry that a ruler in this day and age might be able to make a decision that would totally dismantle God's kingdom because God's kingdom is greater and stronger and eternal and more powerful than anything that exists on this earth. And you ought to be offered hope because Jesus, who came down to this earth and establishes this kingdom, offers you through his grace and mercy and his death and resurrection on the cross an opportunity to be a member of it and a part of it, not just here and today, but for all eternity. That ought to give us hope as we look out into this world. It gave Daniel hope as he looked into a culture in which the rulers were against his God and which the rulers were against him and which his life was in danger over and over again and the lives of his friends were in danger. Daniel had hope in the midst because the truth is kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. That's the hope But there's also a warning. And the warning is against that thing that the philosopher C.S. Lewis said is the vice that leads to all other vices, the complete anti-God state of mind. And the thing that the preacher, the great preacher Jonathan Edwards said is the open door for the devil into each and every person's heart. It is the thing that affects you and it affects me and it is the thing that took down each one of these kings. And that of which we are speaking is the pride and arrogance that lives in your heart and in mine. We are each like Nebuchadnezzar. So impressed sometimes, aren't we, with what we've done and who we are and what we can accomplish so overwhelmed with our, with our own abilities and with our own little kingdom that we have put together that we can easily say to ourselves, look at how smart and creative and talented and intelligent we are. And certainly we have done this as a, as a whole, as a culture. As a culture, we have said, we are so smart and we are so intelligent. We can fix every problem ourselves and we can figure out the beginnings of this world and we can figure out the ends of this world ourselves. So God, we have no need for you Because look at how great and how smart and intelligent we are on our own. We've done that corporately. But we do it individually too. You get that paycheck. And you look at it in your hands or you look at it online and you say to yourself, look what I've done. You get a promotion, build a business raise a family, get a compliment. And it is so easy for us to go and look in the mirror and say to ourselves, look how great I am. Look at how smart and intelligent I am. Look what I can do on my own. And the, the crazy thing about it is it doesn't matter how much or little we've actually accomplished in this world. This thing plagues all of us. We all have this this tendency to be self-sufficient and think we can do it all on our own and that we have no need for any outside help and we try over and over again to continue to build this little kingdom up. And the truth that kings and kingdoms come and go but the kingdom of God lasts forever is a warning for you and for me because nothing keeps us out of God's kingdom like pride. The very entrance into that kingdom is to humble ourselves 
and to say, you're God and I'm not. I'm a sinner and you're perfect. I need forgiveness and only you can forgive me. And it is pride that stops us time and time again from going and being willing to do that. We're so impressed with ourselves and what we can build and so unimpressed with the God who's created it all and whose kingdom lasts forever. And so we put ourselves at great risk saying, putting ourselves in a position where if we're not willing to humble ourselves before God, admit our pride and submit to him, we will find out the hard way, either in this world or in the next, that God was in control all the time. And just the way God humbled those kings, we will be humbled. I'd like to invite our worship team forward as we close this morning. And I'd invite you, if you would, just to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. And think with me about this. Maybe you are in the room this morning and you're not someone that calls yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You know that's not a decision that you've made. This morning, I want you to know that there is a God who loves you and who offers you entrance into a kingdom that is greater than anything in this world. The God who is above all the authorities of this world and who created this world and oversees this world wants a relationship with you. And even though things in this world come and go, even your life in this world will end one day. This kingdom lasts forever. And where your life ends here and this world ends here, if you'll trust in Jesus Christ and follow him, you will be a part of his kingdom in eternity. And maybe today's the day that you would humble yourself and say, God, I, I might be a good person and I might be able to do some things, but next to you, I'm nothing. So I humble myself and recognize that you're God and I'm not and that you are the one who offers true life, that I'm a sinner and you're perfect. That's you this morning and you want to do that for the first time, that connect card that you have, there's a little prayer there at the bottom of the sermon notes that you could pray right now and enter into that kingdom. But maybe you're sitting in the room and you followed God for a long time. Where do you need to humble yourself right now? And recognize that God is in control and you're not. Where are the places that you are taking credit for what is God's work? Where are the places that you are holding on to things so tightly and trying to control things and it's all just slipping through your fingers? Would you this morning come and humble yourselves before the Lord? Put those things in his hands and trust him with it. He can do more with your life and what you have than you could ever do on your own. And his kingdom will always be greater than your kingdom. So where do you need to come and humble yourself before him today? Submit your life to his. God, I pray that in these spaces, that you would help us be honest about where we need to humble ourselves before you. Forgive us for our pride. 
Forgive us of our arrogance, for we think we know better than you. We think that we can do better than you, but God, we cannot. God, would you take control of our lives, take control of our little kingdoms, and thank you for the grace and the mercy that's offered through Jesus Christ and the promise of your kingdom that lasts forever. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.